Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the secret sauce that's coming to identity management for agencies. Biometrics, all the way down to heartbeat rhythm, body temperature, the gait of someone's walk when you're talking about a mobile device. Changes to the Pentagon's CMMC model may not be good for everyone. There's a lot of room for whistleblowers, there's a lot of room for the False Claims Act, and there's a lot of room for DOD to do an investigation and figure out what happened. And the State Department isn't starting from scratch on its zero trust journey. So we really started down this road many years ago, but we ran into two main issues. It's Friday, November 5th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Contractors that don't touch classified information won't need third-party certification anymore under the new version of the Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. The new model condenses the five security tiers in the old model to three. More on the changes to the model later in the program. An amendment to President Biden's social spending bill would add $250 million to the Technology Modernization Fund. The TMF had total funding of $175 million before it got a billion dollars in the American Rescue Plan. The amendment Congressman John Yarmouth filed says the TMF board would have until the end of fiscal 2026 to award the money. The Defense Department will manage its joint all-domain command and control with its current structure for the foreseeable future, according to Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl. He tells FedScoop that structure will change, though, once the technology that supports JADC2 changes. Crawl says that time window should be three to five years. You can read more about all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. Leading government cyber experts like the commander of U.S. Cyber Command, General Paul Nakasone, will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite virtual conference coming Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll join me, too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies like zero trust, endpoint detection and response, and a lot more. You can see the agenda and sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. The Army is on the hunt for a new login solution. It's looking for a solution that works on-premises and in a commercial cloud. Dean Hullings is Global Defense Solutions Strategist at Forescout. He's former chief of the Cyber Requirements Division at Air Force Space Command. Dean, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. Where, what's the intersection of identity management and zero-trust architecture that every organization in government, military, or civilian is talking about? Welcome, Dean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, and that's that's a really um, growing area, right? As we try to move into zero trust environments, um, it's 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 critical to the DoD since we have so many different areas that and people that are connecting. Um, you know, day to day uh, on base premises type solutions are 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 great in those um, areas, but. Um, now it's expanding. I mean, COVID and work from home and and the, just the mobile environment we live in today is is critical for uh, ICAM solutions um, and and really looking at both the the person that's trying to connect and the device that they're trying to connect with. Both critical parts to uh, gaining the trust that's necessary to build zero trust environments. It wasn't long ago that this discussion in the DOD revolved around how do we fix a slider onto somebody's phone so that they can slide their CAC through that slider. What have we evolved to today? Are we? Pa I mean, when you think about it now, I think in hindsight, 
you realize that was kind of a ridiculous way to think about trying to proceed. How far have we advanced from that, Dean? And what does that look like today? And what's over the horizon that an organization like the Army should think about that maybe isn't available today, but could be the solution two years from now or five years from now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and identity has really advanced as you as you mentioned. I know that the uh, Defense Information Systems Agency (DISA) um, has been has been working with a lot of the uh, OTA environments, uh, Defense Innovation Unit, a lot of the innovation centers uh, to try to find those technologies that don't just take into account the old rules of something you have, something you know, but also take into account biometrics all the way down to heartbeat rhythm, body temperature, the gait of someone's walk when you're talking about a mobile device. All of these different data points as networks expand into 5G technology um, and devices get smaller and smaller, um, wearables, all those kinds of things can all now form a picture, a digital picture of who is Dean Hullings, for instance. I mean, you see me, you know exactly who I am. These new technologies are going to help us expand that same um, understanding of who is Dean in the digital world. And that's really exciting, um, you know, getting forward again, back to getting to zero trust capabilities. Yeah, the the fascination there to me is that we used to base this on what you have. You have a cat card or you have this or you have some other piece of something. And now we're getting to using what you are rather than what you have. Is there a potential that we've thought about yet for spoofing that at some point? I mean, if I have, if I can figure out a way to convince the system that I am you, that's obviously a lot more complicated than just taking your card and logging in, but it's doable, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, I would think so uh, eventually, right? Uh, we always try to stay a step or five ahead of the bad guy, uh, but certainly they always uh, challenge those kinds of things as well. But, you know, quite frankly, even even today's technologies, it's, it's only a best guess. Um, there's scoring algorithms that say, you know, I, on a score of one to a hundred with all of these different attributes, um, Dean's score is 75%. And that's where you start getting into how much do you trust it? How much, you know, what does compliance mean? Is it a score of 75 or is it a score of 95? And in the different environments across the DOD, um, they'll be able to adjust those kinds of uh, algorithms or that kind of trust level, depending on what kind of access is required, what kind of data is being looked at, what kind of applications are being used. Um, and that's really where, um, you know, the foundation of Zero Trust with programs like the Comply to Connect program, which kind of focuses on uh, the devices that are connecting and the, the, the trust of those particular devices and how they're connecting into the network ties very closely with the individual identity management tools that the ICAM programs are bringing into uh, into the discussion. I mentioned the Army's uh, request for information at the beginning of our conversation, Dean. You told me before we uh, went on the air that you had a chance to look over that RFI. What do you think is important for the Army or any 
organization and DOD to consider as they're putting this out there and they're receiving these uh, uh, the responses to the RFI back to really make sure they get the outcome that they're going for here? And I think it's important to all of the organizations, not just Army, but the dynamic environment that they're in. Uh, you look at the Army, Just we'll just take the Army. They, they've got posts all over, but they also have uh, the Guard, and the Guard has different requirements when they're on their home networks, but when they get you know federalized, they're no longer working for the, the governor, they get federalized, those requirements change or they get deployed into a combatant commander's environment and those environments change again. And it's all about the different levels of risk. So uh, being dynamic, having tools that are dynamic are going to be critical, but also those that can uh, continue to take in all of these different uh, pieces that we were talking about before. It can't just be a a one particular thing and that's what we trust. It's It's got to be um, many different attributes and, you know, they all have to work together. They all have to come together and, and give that score or whatever um, is going to be the method used to decide what is trusted. Dean Hullings, thanks very much for joining me. Appreciate your insight. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. You can read more about the Army's new RFI in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department will remake the cybersecurity maturity model certification process. Companies that don't handle classified data will have more latitude than they had before. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and & Knight and following the CMMC process. Eric, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are the major differences between what we learned yesterday and what the CMMC represented before that. Welcome. Thanks, and thanks for having me. How many hours do you have to discuss this? <laughs> <laughs> because it, there are a lot of differences. And, um, you know, we start with the fact that there are some contractors who are not going to be required to get a, uh, a, a third-party assessment anymore. So previously, this was broken up to, into five different levels. All five would have to get a third-party assessment. Now... We're consolidating those levels into three levels, essentially eliminating, eliminating levels two and four. And level one is a self-assessment. Level three, some companies will be self-assessed and some will requ be required to have a third-party assessment, which is now level two. And the previous level five, which is now level three, everyone will still have to get a third-party assessment. Um, but there's, there's a lot of nuanced differences besides that. And kind of the self-assessment process, you know, I think in some ways makes this in some ways, more trying for contractors. Why is that? Because it sounds counterintuitive. Yes, and uh, I'm all about the counterintuitive here. <laughs> but um, previously, when contractors would get a third-party assessment, even for level one, they're kind of buying their risk off. Um, so if you have a third party come in, do an assessment saying you're great, and then something bad happens where you have an internal person, a whistleblower saying you're not all great, or you have a cybersecurity breach in the government, is wondering what happened, you can point to that assessor and that assessment that says, hey, I'm, you guys told me I'm cool. Now, um, you don't have anybody to shift that risk to. So you're kind of, you're holding that risk yourself. And not only you're holding it yourself, but somebody in your leadership is the one who's holding the bag because this new system is going to require essentially a, a C-level person signing off on the cybersecurity prowess of your company on an annual basis. And it's a certification. 
So, you know, if, if there's something lacking about that sign off, there's a lot of room for whistleblowers. There's a lot of room for the false claims act. And there's a lot of room for DOD to do an investigation and figure out what happened. Cause I'm sure who knows for sure, but I, I, I do anticipate that they'll reserve the right to, to do an investigation or to um, verify the fact that you said you're kosher with the, uh, with the model whether you are or not. You mentioned the False Claims Act, and I thought the development that the Justice Department would use the False Claims Act to pursue companies that have cyber shortcomings was maybe one of the most important developments cyber-wise of the last number of years. And it seems to me, at least, it's gotten almost no coverage, almost no conversation. So, when you, And that, to be clear, was not in the context of CMMC, but when you mention it, as you did a moment ago, it triggers that in my mind again, Eric, which is the government is going to use some of these tools available to it that it hasn't used before to demonstrate to companies that it's getting super, super dead serious about cybersecurity, right? Yeah, and you're right. It has gotten almost no no coverage. I will confess, I did write a blog about it. That's on our website. <laughs> but so it has gotten a very little bit of coverage. You don't but, need to um, confess that. That's good news, and we'll link to yes. that at thedailyscooppodcast.com. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, I don't know that these things are unrelated. Being that there's a lot more room for false claims act uh, violations and complaints and things like that in this new CMMC model. And the fact that DOJ a few weeks ago announced a new initiative going after companies who aren't compliant with cybersecurity standards, I know, you know, maybe the conspiracy theorist in me, but I'm kind of thinking that maybe DOJ has been working with DOD on this a little bit. It maybe got a heads up and has and pushed this out to kind of, you know, show companies that we're going to take this very seriously and anticipating that this model was going to have an element of self-assessment to it now, that companies should be warned. That if you self-assess, you know, with recklessness, you're you're going to hear from us. All right. What do you think of the changes to CMMC? Is either the most difficult for companies uh, to make will make their jobs harder, uh, will make their jobs more expensive as they try to do this, or potentially is maybe an eliminating factor for small businesses? Because I mean, you know, I've talked about CMMC a thousand times. It seems like since the concept came about. And one of the things that you have brought up time and time again is the potential challenge that it presents for small businesses. And I wonder if this makes it easier or harder for that, or just broadly what you see in these changes that might be an unintended consequence. Certainly for small businesses that don't really have kind of the CUI or covered defense information and like they're mowing the lawn, you know, on a base or the cleaning cleaning um, rooms and bathrooms and stuff like that. Um, you know, I think for those companies, it's going to be easier. The, the cost, or at least on a, from a cost perspective, because they're not going to have to have a third party come in and do an assessment of their compliance with cybersecurity standards. Um, but, you know, at what cost will that be? You know, now they're going to have to certify on an annual basis. Somebody in their C-suite is going to have to certify that they're compliant with, with the uh, FAR cybersecurity clause. And are, is that C-level person going to feel comfortable doing that based on the word of, you know, their employees when they maybe don't have a specialist on staff who knows cyber very well? You know, if I'm them, I'm going to want to hire somebody to come in and do an internal assessment that they can base that certification off of. And um, so I think in that respect, kind of the cost will be somewhat similar. 
but they won't have the cost of a, an assessment itself. So that they'll be saving money there. Because I would imagine even before this 2.0 came out, I, I think what DOD failed to realize early on is how much this would cost companies because they weren't, DOD was assuming this would be something that companies just have on level one, a, kind of a low level employee kind of monitor and shepherd through. When this is a go, no go requirement, if you don't have it, you can't perform, you can't get the contract. So there wasn't a recognition that companies were going to hire third parties to come in and do their own assessments before the formal assessment happened. Even with this new model, I think there's probably going to be some significant costs that small businesses are going to undertake. That's why I've been saying all along, or at least in the last six months or so, if they want to change this to make it easier on small businesses, you know, root out the, the couch cushions at DOD's budget and pull out some change and pay for those assessments and pay for that compliance for small businesses. Uh, it would be a rounding error in DOT's budget to do that. And you keep a lot of these small businesses within the DIB, which is really important because we're losing them left and right, make it easier for them to comply by, because it's, it's a cost thing. So um, make, it, make the cost be zero and you'll have folks who are willing to, to play along and to be compliant. And they are anyway, a lot of them, but some of them are dropping out just because it's not worth, worth a headache. Uh, the other issue that I call on you for expertise in, Eric, is the compliance with the vaccine mandate in the contractor base. Does the extra month or so that companies got this week make a big difference in that, or is it not that big a deal? It's a little bit of both. So in one respect, it's helpful because a lot of contractors are really having a difficult time kind of processing the request for exemptions, the religious and health exemptions, and those are taking time. So not only the extended deadline, but the kind of the, the government and an FAQ coming out and saying, well, if you're processing those exemptions, you could have them still work um, and be compliant with this clause. Um, you just have to kind of keep processing them, but you could still, you're still there. Um, you, you still consider compliant. So that FAQ is really helpful. And now this extra time is, is helpful also because it gives, it gives companies more time to kind of get the ducks in a row. What was really difficult about this is not the mandate itself, but how, how um, short a time companies had to get compliant. I mean, you look at CMMC, this thing has been rolling out for like the last two years. So companies have had fair warning that this is coming. This vaccine mandate, you know, was really developed, what, like, a month ago or so, and it's impacting, you know, millions of millions of contractor employees. And uh, I'm not arguing whether the policy is good or bad. That's not for me to say. Um, although I have my opinions, <laughs> but um, but I'm you know I oh, think come from, on, uh, <laughs> come on. I don't want to. If I say one thing or the other, I'm going to turn off half okay. half the people I talk to. All right, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do think that. Um, you know, I, I do think this was rolled out very quickly and that's posed a huge challenge. So I think that extra time is going to be helpful, but I, you know, it's not entirely clear, but my suspicion is if you get this in your contract before that date, you still have these other health requirements that you have to comply with the masking, the social distancing, the fact that you have to have a coordinator for each work site that coordinates that, you know, to make sure everything is, is done properly at that site. Um, there's no mention of that being delayed. So contractors should be aware that that's probably something they're going to expect contractors to be comply, compliant with, you know, once that clause is in their contract, even before that January 4th date. Um, so I haven't seen anything that that's pushed off a month by a month or three weeks. 
Eric Crucius, always terrific to talk to you. Thanks for your time today. Sure, thanks. You can read more about the new CMMC rules and the deadline extensions for vaccines for contractors in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Monday's show, you'll go with me to Imagination 2021, the executive leadership conference that ACT-IAC is putting on in Hershey, Pennsylvania. It opens Sunday night. I'll be there on Monday, taking you inside the conference rooms and talking to some of the leaders that will be there. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The White House executive order on cybersecurity includes deadlines for agencies to put zero trust technology and strategy into operation. Some agencies were already using zero trust concepts before the White House told them to. Rob Hankinson is acting director of Office Information Technology Infrastructure at the State Department as part of FedScoop's video series on zero trust and password protection. Rob tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash the White House EO on cyber hasn't changed state's zero trust strategy, but it did change the department's timeline. We've dabbled in the world of uh, zero trust for many, many years. Uh, Identity management, we started four or five years ago with trying to collect and consolidate different initiatives that are uh, uh, usually pretty common for such a federated agency. And the more agencies I talk to, the more common a federated environment is. So we really started down this road many years ago, but we ran into two main issues, and that's with prioritization. Real world usually trumped over everything that we were trying to do. And at the Department of State, that usually happened quite a bit. If you look at anything in the news recently, we're all over it, and that's nothing new. We're, We're usually dealing with some world crisis at any given point. So prioritization uh, really was an issue for us. Uh, And then funding and resources were another one. The executive order and the TMF helped out uh, or or will help out with that extensively with both. So we've been, been, like I said, dabbling in this world for many, many years of zero trust. And uh, we've tried a a number of different solutions, but actual implementation has been a little troublesome trying to get everything brought up to the forefront and, and uh, as important to us as it is to uh, the, the, the rest of the world. So the executive order allowed us to bring that up to the top, uh, reprioritize all of our efforts, uh, what we wanted to do all along, take a lot of our plans and speed up the timelines considerably. And we used the, uh, we, we put in a, a large request in for the TMF to help fund that solution. Uh, even without that, I think we'll be able to get there. It's just gonna take a lot longer. Uh, but the executive order really did a, a, a fantastic job of helping uh, change the, the, uh, how we were going to do it and when we were going to do it. Well, the State Department is probably the epitome of an organization supporting a remote workforce. So, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, how is the government's willingness to <clears throat> allow employees to work more remotely or in a more hybrid environment sort of altered your approach to things like identity and multi-factor authentication and other ways to keep users secure. You're right. We, we, we are the epitome for remote work. Unfortunately, we weren't doing it in the right way. We did not have a very strong remote work culture uh, before even, even COVID. On any given day, uh, a, a snowstorm or a, any, any reason an employee would need to work from home would absolutely crush our networks. We didn't have a remote, a, a, a very robust remote access capability. For the most part, we came into the office every day. Very few people teleworked. We would come in. We've got, we've got um, passport offices and we've got things that we had to do physically in person. 
So the culture just wasn't there. Um, so uh, when, when, when COVID hit and the, the executive order came out, uh, both of them allowed us to move things quickly to the cloud. Uh, look at uh, a number of different authentication mechanisms, some that we've been playing around with for, for some time, uh, some of them non-PIV derived and, and being a federal agency, we really focused hard on HSPD 12 and we really tried hard to get there. Uh, we, we still weren't quite there, but there were some, some other uh, capabilities that came out from OMB that allowed us to, to loosen that a little bit and, and look at some other non-PIV authenticators that really changed the game for us. We're, we were able to move applications to the cloud much quicker. We were able to use a, a better consolidated identity management system with a multi-factor authentication that did not necessarily rely on PIV, uh, but it pr still provided a very strong, robust credential and authentication mechanism to validate our users and, and the devices that they're coming in on. So even though we, we were doing things differently and we did them quite quickly, to get in front of the demand of our user base. Uh, I don't think we lessened our security posture in any way. If anything, I think we increased it uh, quite a bit. Uh, and we continually look on, on building on top of that using continuous authentication and, and other uh, attribute uh, mechanisms to, to make those more granular determinations of who should be on our network, when they should be on the network, where they should be on the network from, and a number of different questions we wanna ask ourselves before we give access to the ultimate data that they're trying to get to. Well, how would you say the State Department is moving towards a more human-centric cybersecurity model? For instance, by helping equip employees to deal with the growing threat of ransomware and phishing attacks. Yeah, that's, that's a real problem for everybody. And it's something that we're really trying to, to hammer on two fronts. Uh, first is the, uh, the training aspect of it. We want our users to be able to identify when a, a, a spear phishing attack is, is sitting in front of them and to be able to not, not click on that button. It doesn't make sense. I don't know who this person is or just something seems a little fishy about it. So we're, we're training through annual training and we're also running different exercises. Uh, which I, 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 I'm kind of sad to admit that, uh, that we ran an exercise of a phishing campaign to help us understand what level our users were at. Uh, and I got tripped on it. So I clicked the button, I clicked the link as, as the director of it. It was, it was a little embarrassing, but it, I learned a lot from that. I learned on how easy it could be to, to click on that and the things that I needed to change and I needed to look for. Uh, uh, we're, we're also looking at it from the back end as, as emails coming in to be able to scan that real time uh, and to, to see something that's, that's coming in and stop it before it even gets to that user, before they can click on it, keeping our patches up to date, uh, being able to know when something is, is new in the environment and that we need to watch out for it using, using the, the, the many, many different security solutions, uh, services that are out there to, to get in front of this. Uh, and then we're, we're also focusing on the remediation effort as well. So if, if all of that fails, how do we back back out of that and really not get affected and hit hard by a ransomware attack? Again, making sure our patch is up to date to catch it, but then having our backups in place and to not be affected by the same attack that then we can just uh, go ahead and replace the data and keep things running with a with little bit of impact to the, to the uh, capabilities of the mission. You can find a link to the entire video with Rob Hankinson of the State Department in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms you listen to. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A trip to ELC 2021 coming on Monday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.